Jesus asked many questions that cut to the heart of the matter and revealed truth to those who listened. But what can these questions teach us about life and God in our modern times? Find out today on the Central Baptist Podcast. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew, chapter 5, or you may choose to follow along in the sermon notes or with the words on the screen. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hello, everybody. How are (laughs) you? Good. Hey, uh, I know some of you know this. Uh, I grew up in in this church. Uh, My parents uh, have been here since uh, 1978. Man, it seems weird to even say that, that 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 time existed. We used to attend church over at um, that that other um, area. We've referred to it as the old chapel now. Uh, We used to have our spot up in the balcony. And I remember one time as a, as, a, as a kid, probably pretty young, my friend Mike and I, uh, not Mike Holland, but uh, a different Mike, um, we were up uh, at the balcony at the far end. There was a kind of a grate that uh, had holes. You could see the people as they were walking down the aisle at, at the bottom level. My friend Mike and I had our bulletin, uh, and we would take, and this, without my parents knowing this, so, so this is, <laughs> so we would, um, we, we, we took our, our bulletin, and we tore off little pieces of paper, and we would, when we see them come down, we'd drop it down the, the grade and move back like this, as if, you know, nobody's going to know what's going on, right? We're hiding for ourselves, and we thought this was great, a lot of fun, uh, until, of course, we felt, I felt the, uh, the firm grasp of one of our faithful ushers who, uh, who discovered what was going on and came and uh, put an end to that. It brought me to my, my parents for a swift justice. Uh, but I tell you that story because I understand in Baptist culture, we have our spots in the church, right? That was our seat. And so I, I, I want to, to say that because I, I want to give a special shout out to our, our, our balcony dwellers. On a day like today, right, out of all days, I, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe you could come down. There's lots of room down here, and, but, but I, I, I appreciate your Baptist commitment to sitting in the place you normally sit, no matter the temperature. So welcome. You are all welcome, and you have my admiration and my understanding, and maybe a little bit of pity as well. But uh, anyway, you are all welcome uh, here. Recall that our, the purpose of our sermon series is this each Sunday, to enter the life of Jesus by means of observing his strategic use of questions. So our series is called Questions Jesus Asked. And uh, Phil did a great job giving us a little bit of the, the numbers around how many times Jesus asked questions. And last week, Kevin helped us to uh, wrestle with another one of our, uh, Jesus' questions. But the whole purpose of this is our goals are then to... Think well, worship well, and live well. I love those. Think well, worship well, live well. And in fact, I think all of us 
would do well to do that every Sunday or to have that as kind of your motto coming to church or even every time you open scripture or every time you gather with a group of believers to study the Bible or to read the Bible, um, to, to determine in yourselves to think well, worship well, and live well. Um, Thinking well results, of course, from being challenged by God's truth, recognizing that we don't understand it all naturally to us. We need help. This is an essential part of our transformation. Paul explains this to the Roman church. Um, to avoid being conformed to this world, because there's external pressures on us that, that want to influence us to think differently, God says our mind needs to be transformed so we understand uh, his will and, and his truth. So sitting at the feet of Jesus, I mean, really sitting here, really sitting there. So I encourage all of us every week to come committed to say, look, I want to sit here. I want to listen to Jesus. I want to hear his questions. I want to wrestle with his questions. So the, and, uh, listening to his questions uh, so that we can pause and respond and maybe ask the questions, what is he talking about? How does that work? Or what does he mean? And these are indications, of course, of places in our thinking where we need to grow. But just as important as listening carefully to the teaching of Jesus is the realization that Jesus is not just a teacher, right? This is important for us to recognize. Jesus is not, he's a great teacher, but he's not just our teacher. If we rely only on the teaching of Jesus, and are satisfied by having our thinking challenged, we, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus offers us way more than good teaching. In fact, this is what separates him from everything and everyone else that claims to know the truth. Because not only does Jesus teach the truth, but he provides the condition to accept the truth. This is why we refer to Jesus as our savior. We need this transformation. We need to be saved. We, it's not just information that we need. We need Jesus to come and transform us. We need his presence to transform us. So as a result of sitting at his feet, listening to his questions, not only are we allowing our mind to be transformed, but we also have the very presence of God, this savior that is coming to help us understand, to work through this. And this is why we then can worship him well, because his presence is here. It's not just information, his, pre his presence is required in order for us to understand. So this is so, not only do we wanna think well, but we wanna worship well, because here we are at Jesus' feet, and we have the opportunity to not only hear the truth, but then worship the truth bringer. But even then, we haven't reached the end of God's resources, right? Once we've encountered God's truth and the conditions to receive the truth, God then motivates us. We find this, right? All of us, I'm sure we would agree. We've, we've, we've opened scripture together at, at, at some point, or you've sat in the service, and, and, and something uh, in scripture kind of motivates you or inspires you to say, I've got to make some changes to the way I live. The Christian faith is not merely informative, Christian faith is transformative. The, transform the transformative effects are revealed through how we respond, how we live. Because listen, if we really, or we haven't really heard Jesus, if we don't see how we might live better as a result of interacting with him, right? We haven't really heard Jesus. 
He wants us to reflect his image. As we're going to see here today, he wants us to reflect the image of our father, the likeness of our father. And, and that requires some life change. So we're here to think well. Yes, absolutely. Be challenged by the information. But we also are here to worship well because Jesus brings these conditions for us to understand. But then we're going to turn around and then we're going to live well as a result of spending our time together. So with that in mind, let's pray each Sunday that we come, each time we are engaging with scripture, that, that all of us, as we enter into the life of Jesus, by means of observing his strategic use of questions, we might think well, worship well, and live well. I want to comment on one other thing before we dig into the text today. And that is the nature of a question. One of the challenging things about a question is that questions require us to work. And not all of us like that, right? We would prefer us asking Jesus the questions and then kind of sitting back and then listening to his response, right? A lecture doesn't require work. A story doesn't require work. Questions, when we are asked a question, it requires us to work, to think. So in order to think well, worship well, and live well, we're going to have to do a little bit of work to respond to Jesus' question, because he's asking us a question today. Okay? So let's do a little work today. Here's the big picture. Here's what I want to do today. Uh, as Susan read the scripture today, maybe you kind of hung on that, that last verse, right? Be perfect. Just as your heavenly father is perfect. Yikes. That's a tough way to, to end off a passage of scripture, right? So here, here's what I think. Let me just cut to the chase when, when it comes to this perfection, this idea of perfection. Here, what I think Jesus is doing is he's, if, if you caught earlier in the passage, he's talking about being like our heavenly father, being children of our heavenly father. And this is when Jesus says, be perfect. This is an, a, a challenge to us, anyone who wants to be a child of God to reflect his likeness. He's perfect, so we reflect his likeness in our lives. So, to be perfect, this is the challenge, therefore we need to, if I can put it sort of bluntly and maybe a little crassly, we need to behave like dad. We need to act like dad. Okay? So, now being like the father, acting like dad, is possible if we are his children. Right? There ought to be a family resemblance. This is the whole thing. For, for most of us, right, when we talk about family resemblance, oftentimes we're talking about the physicality. Oh, you look just like your father, or you're just like your mother, or uncle, aunt, something like that, or grandparents. But here what we're talking about is we're resemb we want to resemble our father in our character, right? In how we live our life, in how we respond. And we can do that. To act and respond then like his children, we need to set our standards a bit higher. And this is where the challenge is going to come. This is where the work is going to have to come from us this morning. We're going to have to raise our standards from, if I could put it this way, being simply human. Doing things like loving those who love us already. Doing things like greet, greeting only, welcoming only our brothers and sisters. Right, as Jesus is going to say, everybody's capable of that. That's good, don't get me wrong, he's not criticizing that, but he's saying as children of our Heavenly Father, we can set our standards even higher. 
We can, we can put our goals even higher. And we can behave like our Father by doing these things that seem impossible, that seem extraordinary. Things like loving our enemies. Praying for those who persecute you. All right? So, to summarize in kind of a, more of a practical manner, Jesus is going to ask the question of us today. What reward do you have? Human likeness, one option. Well enough, good. Or the Father's likeness. This is where the challenge is going to be, okay? So, let's dig in. Before we do, would you please uh, bow your heads with me and, and let's just commit this time to the Lord. Father, we just come before you and ask uh, you would guide our thoughts. That each of us, Father, you would use my words that I'm speaking, my preparation. You would use it for your purposes here. That you would use the, um, the heart preparation of, of everyone who's listening. Their ears would be attuned to your voice. Their mind would be concentrated on the question of Jesus. And their will would be ready to do the work that you're asking of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus begins this section uh, of his teaching with a provocative statement. He says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I'm going to save us some time today. Actually, I had a whole section written in my message. I was going to explain all that was going on, but I'm just going to cut to the chase on this one, all right? Nowhere... In scripture, can you find that last bit? Hate your enemy. Here, Jesus is not talking, he's not quoting scripture. He's not saying, thus saith the Lord, love your enemy, or sorry, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. We're not gonna find that there. In fact, this, this whole teaching of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount, much of the detail of it comes from Leviticus 19. And, and this loving your neighbor comes from this verse in, in verse 18 where we read, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right? This chapter is full of instruction. If you were to go back and read Leviticus 19, full of instructions, mainly about how to treat fellow Hebrews, fellow Jews, but it also provides directions on how to treat those who are not Hebrews. But listen, there is nothing about hating anyone in that text. So what's going on? So what, what Jesus is doing here is he's not pointing out problems with the biblical text. He's not criticizing, he's not changing anything about scripture. But he's challenging the way that people are starting to interpret scripture. Does that sound familiar? People have different interpretations of scripture. To some, it seemed logical to conclude then, when you know, some in Jesus' audience, that if you love one group of people, right, your neighbors, if you love them, then it's not a stretch to sort of logically conclude that there must be, if that's a group you love, with these parameters, right, your neighbor, right, they haven't heard Jesus' teaching on the neighbor yet, so they don't know how expansive that is, but let's, just for the sake of argument, here's the uh, parameters for what a neighbor is, then everything outside of that is kind of fair game for different ways of relating, right? And those people outside of, your, outside of that grouping of your neighbor that you particularly detest for whatever reason, probably good reasons, could be very good reasons, then it's logical to say, well, if you love this group, then I'm going to hate that group. 
In fact, it was, it seems to have kind of caught on. It became popular because Jesus just said, you've heard it. People are talking about this, right? Love your enemy or love your neighbor. I'm cutting to the chase. I'm getting too far ahead of myself here. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So here's what, that's what Jesus is challenging. And I think, although the text doesn't say this, I think right at this moment, Jesus paused. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Then he paused, right? I think so. Because I, th- I think, because here, uh, I-, I think everybody back then had the same interaction with the term enemy that we might have today. Everybody then might have known what it's like to hate an enemy. So let me ask you this question this morning. Who's your enemy? Who do you hate? Kind of an uncomfortable question, right? Well, in that pause, I'm sure his audience back then might have had some thoughts like this. Okay, Jesus, good. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Now you're talking. Let's talk about those dirty, good-for-nothing Romans and those ignorant, polytheistic Greeks and those low-down, miserable tax collectors. Yeah, let's call down God's judgment on those people, right? That's what we're used to doing. Our Hebrew scriptures are full of it. Maybe even today, though, as you heard those words, or maybe that you've, you yourselves have read those words in the past, maybe you yourself, maybe we have experienced a bit of shot of adrenaline when we hear that. Enemy, yes. All right, here we go. Judgment, fire, brimstone. Maybe we're thinking about those who have different political views, different opinions about vaccinations, or different views about sexuality, gender, or abortion. Or maybe you're feeling a measure of hurt again when you hear that word enemy. Uh, Maybe you've been hurt in the past by people, and because of that hurt, you have trouble trusting others, or maybe even making friends. It's not a stretch then to imagine how some at the time of Jesus, or any time, our time as well, how some might conclude that if we're to love our own kind, we can, we're, uh, we're welcome to hate those that are not part of us, however we want to define us. After all, right, it, we don't have to go very far in, in Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament to hear some of this language. Listen to some of these scriptures, right? In Genesis 14, the priest king Melchizedek blesses Ab- Abram with these words. Blessed be Abraham, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That's what God does with enemies, right? He delivers them into our hands into the hands of his people, right? He defeats them. When God was preparing the nation of Israel to enter the promised land, he told them that if they're obedient to his voice, then I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make your enemies turn their backs on you, is recorded in Exodus 23. God promises again to act so that the enemies of the Hebrew people will be thwarted even before they encounter them. God protects his people from their enemies. And then, of course, we have the Psalms, right? Oh, the Psalms. Listen to these ones. Rise up, O Lord, deliver me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Oh my God, in you I trust. Don't let me put to shame. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. And so on, and so on. So who's your enemy? Who do you hate? Who's the one you want to be defeated? 
That politician who promotes policies that you think are wrong? That boss who doesn't appreciate your talents and abilities? That coworker who refuses to give credit where credit is due? That person who wounded you? Who? Who is your enemy? Who do you hate? Don't forget now. At the very beginning, you gave, my, you gave your implicit agreement to do some work here today to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his questions, hear his comments. So who's your enemy? Maybe some of you in the back of your mind, you've already made the appeal to Ephesians 6, right? Those of you who have been around uh, Christian circles for a while, you know, really, Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, our, our battle, our fight isn't against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and the kingdom of darkness, right? That's our enemy. And so we kind of go there. And ultimately, yes, that's true. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. But, but still, let me poke and prod a little bit more. Because is there anyone else lingering in the back of your mind, sort of that you're tucking away somewhere, that you maybe don't, that you refuse to, to uh, acknowledge, lingering way back in the recesses of your heart and mind, that you still think of as an enemy? Because then we can learn from Jesus. Because guess what? He's just about to indulge us. He's going to indulge our enemy talk here. He's not going to stop and say, oh, you thought, you thought of an enemy? Aha, I got you. Nope, Jesus is going to say, okay. All right, you've got enemies. I've got enemies. We've got enemies. How do we treat our enemies? How does a child of God, our heavenly father, act towards our enemies? Okay, in order to get there, the question then becomes personal. Then Jesus asks, and I'll sum up kind of the longer question in the text itself as this. Re what reward do you have? What reward do you have? Literally, what reward are you experiencing now? This is not, there, there's plenty in the Christian faith that we have in terms of future hope. Reward in the future, right? When Jesus comes again, his kingdom comes, right? All of the, the sin, death, and the devil, all of that will be destroyed, revealed to have been destroyed already, and there'll be no more pain, no more anguish, no more sickness, all of that. That's future, that's to come, that's gonna come. But Jesus is not talking about that, he's talking about now. What are you experiencing now as a result of being a child of God? What is your reward now? There are two options, he says. I'm gonna classify option number one as human likeness, okay? We see these in verses 46 and 47. So to behave like, merely like a human is to do these two things. First of all this, love those who love you. There's nothing wrong with this idea, right? Jesus is not criticizing this. It is a very good thing to love those who love you. It is important. There's, there's, uh, there's something powerful, right? We know this. Hopefully we know this. When somebody can look at you and you can look at somebody and know that they love you. And then that you in turn respond the same way to love them back. Sadly, some of us may not know what that's like. Some of us may know what it's like to have nobody or at least the appearance of nobody who would say even that, that they love you. That's a terrible place to be. 
So to have people love you is essential, it is good. And then to love those people back is beneficial. This is a great reward. But Jesus doesn't settle there, right? Before we get too comfortable with this, look at what Jesus then says here. If you think that's the best that you can do, that you just love those who love you, guess what? Even the lowly tax collectors do that. This was meant to shock his audience, right? Saying this. Build it up, right? Nobody, nobody would disagree loving those who love you is, is bad. And yet Jesus is saying, even those that you think are so low on the social scale as a tax collector, even those guys can do that. Um, with apologies to all our tax collectors in our, especially my dad, who's a retired one, uh, even the lowly tax collectors can do that. And this was meant to shock, and I, I, I can imagine that when he said that, there probably was an audible gasp. <gasps> Not the tax collectors. They can't, be do, they can't be possibly able to do anything good, right? You, you know the story of how this, this happens, right? These were usually Jews, and, and they were seen as traitors because they were sort of agents of the dreaded Romans. And they were not only just agents, but they were financial agents. And so they would collect taxes for the Roman government, the, the, um, their interloping Roman empire on God's chosen people. And here are these Jews, these, these people who were taking the money, not only taking the money to give to the Romans, but taking their own cut from it, right? These were despised. And Jesus says, even these people, imagine here today, who are the lowest of the lows in your mind? Jesus is saying, those are the people that can love those who love them already. The point is, Jesus says, that's setting the bar too low. As children of God, we are capable of so much more. This is just being human. The other characteristic Jesus notes as part of that first option is number two, greeting your own brothers and sisters. Again, there's a reward here. This is a great thing. If, if, if we're committed to acknowledging those who are closest to us, that we might think of family, of friends, right? It's wonderful when somebody, somebody goes on holiday or something for a while, especially here at the church, and they come back for the first su Sunday and people gather around, oh, we missed you, we missed you, what happened? How did it go, right? To, to sort of greet those, your brothers and sisters, all part of the same kind of group, and that you too will notice those, right? It's, it's, it's heartwarming, it's, it's important, it's, a, um, it's strengthening for ourselves to notice people, to really see people. That is a great reward. But again, Jesus shocks his audience by stating that if you think that is good, even the Gentiles, that is everyone else, not just God's chosen people, everyone else is capable of that. It's not a specific characteristic of the Jews, Jesus says of us. Once again, Jesus is saying that's not sufficient. He implies that as important and healthy it is, again, remember, he's not criticizing these things. He's saying that you as a child of God are capable of so much more because that's how our Heavenly Father is. So now Jesus turns and asks the question, do you want to have or do you have the reward of declaring, demonstrating, reflecting the likeness of our Heavenly Father now? So really this question of what reward do you have is really the question, do you want to be, do you want to reflect our heavenly father? Do you want to be a child of God? 
If so, according to Jesus, children of God are capable of so much more. So what does Jesus think we're capable of? He shares two distinct things. It's easy to tie these things together, but both of them are uh, good in and of themselves. So we'll talk about them separately. The first activity that reflects a likeness with our Heavenly Father is just that, that I've been saying uh, all along, love your enemies. Love those, those that you determine, right? Jesus is indulging us. He's given permission. You define the enemy in your head. Whoever that is, you've been hurt or you've, been, you've, you've suffered injustice or something. You can define that. You can classify that. But when you do, if you want to reflect the likeness of your heavenly father, then you've got to work towards loving them. This has got to be your trajectory in your relationship with them. Now, now understand, Jesus is not suggesting here that it's just a matter of flipping a switch. Going, oh, yeah, all that hurt's gone. I love my enemies now. No, no, it takes some work. It takes some acknowledgement. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But to love our enemies is to reflect our Heavenly Father. Why? Because this is exactly what he does. To love our Heavenly Father begins, or to love like our Heavenly Father begins as a commitment to love everyone. Going back to the Psalms, we hear how this is recognized. This is a recognized characteristic of our Father. Psalm 145 verse 9, Yahweh is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. People see this. Jesus explains this very thing right in our very text. He notes that God causes the sun to shine on all and the rain to fall on on all. These are good things. These are blessings. These are benefits. And by God's grace and by his mercy, he does that to all. This is his orientation. This is his, um, this is, this is how he is, uh, in relationship with us, how he, he longs to be in relationship with us. This is a demonstration of his love. It is out of this compassion, this love, that Jesus came and was crucified to cover the payment for all our sins because we needed that help, right? We needed this, and so he did this. Otherwise, Scripture tells us in Romans that we were his enemies. If God just shunned and hated enemies, none of us would have any hope, and yet here's how God responds to his enemies. Here's how he demonstrates. He sends his son, and his son dies for us. Now, there is a risk at this moment because when we talk about God's love and God's general orientation towards humanity, that it kind of sounds like that's all that God cares about, right? And sometimes we can be aggressively too, we can overdetermine that concept because we do have to keep in mind that, that there's more that is happening, right? It's not enough just to know God's love for his creation, Sometimes we can give the impression when we talk about God's love, and rightly so, right? This is important for us to understand and to accept that God loves everyone. Like right now, God's orientation towards them is love. Scripture tells us that, that uh, God is love. But we can also give the impression that God is some, just, you know, kind of like some kind of uh, grandpa in the sky who keeps saying, that's okay, here's a dollar. That's okay, here's two dollars. Loving our enemies does not mean we lose sight of injustice. As much as we need to keep God's love for all in mind, we also have to recognize the importance of other passages. Like we read in Joel chapter 1. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. When Jesus began his public ministry, he attended a synagogue service. You know this from Luke chapter 4. He read a text from Isaiah 61. 
And the part of Isaiah that he read promises one will come on whom the spirit of God will rest and that his, his um, activity will be to proclaim freedom for the captives, sight for the blind, proclaim good news to the poor, which is to say to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's at this moment that Jesus stops his reading, closes up, hands off the text and says, today it's fulfilled in your midst. He leaves his audience with to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you go back and you read the entire passage of Isaiah 61, you realize there's more to the text. In addition to proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, the verse then goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's God's plan. But right now, listen, right now, Jesus wanted us to know that we are right now, we have time to respond because this is the year of the Lord's favor. Here, right now, for us, presently, for you. And the invitation then is to respond to the love of God in your life by committing your life to him, by submitting to him, by recognizing that we need him, and by saying, God, I'm sorry for my sins, and committing our life to following Jesus, to live the way that he did. That is our opportunity right now, but there'll come a time when we no longer have that opportunity. But that is God's determination, not ours. For now, let's declare that now is the time to respond. Let's offer that, let's share that, and let us ourselves respond as well. Right now, he's inviting you and I to respond out of his great love. The second activity that demonstrates a family resemblance to the Heavenly Father, to our Heavenly Father, is this. Pray for those who persecute you. Again, we don't have to spend tons of time here because we just look to Jesus for our example. There is Jesus hanging on the cross, Scripture explains. In the midst of his greatest physical suffering, in the midst of his abuse, in the midst of, uh, of the, um, the, the perfect, the, the, uh, the guiltless paying for the guilty. And what does he do? He turns his attention to his father and says, Father, forgive them. He prays for those who are persecuting him. He prays for his abusers. He prays for his tormentors. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? Think of the time in your life when you were suffering the worst part of your pain. Where was your attention directed at that moment? Probably internally, right? Almost all of us would. But here's Jesus saying there is, we are capable of so much more. As a way to reflect the likeness of our Heavenly Father, we are capable of so much more. We can pray in that moment. We have the ability to pray, not because it's internal to us, but because by God's grace, as, as a likeness, as being transformed into the likeness of God, that comes with it. Loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute you. These are presented as conditionals, right? In other words, it's an if-then if kind of situation, but it's a distinct kind. So the conditional is not causative. In other words, He's not saying, Jesus is not saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, then you will be a child of God, right? He's saying, as you love your enemies, as you grow to love you, as you commit to love your enemies, as you commit to learn what it means to pray for those, you are reflecting more and more the fact that you already are a child of God. This is the reward Jesus prefers for us. This is what it's like to be our heavenly father, to be like our heavenly father, to take on to his, his characteristics, to be just like him. 
But again, keep in mind, these are activities. These activities are response to the desire to be like our Heavenly Father. But before that, we need to receive his help. This is how we know what our Father is like. We learn that Christ gave his life for his enemies, for sinners, for us. And so we, we must first receive that forgiveness. Then we can become like our Father. Not the other way around. We don't try and act like this to become children of God. We receive that forgiveness and God begins to transform us. And then we become capable of loving our enemies, of praying for those people who in, the, in that very moment, that boss who frustrates us, who refuses that, uh, to, to give us that, um, that addition in pay or, uh, or, or even to, to get hired for the job in the first place, we, we have the capability of then praying and saying, God, help that person discover you. Help that person to, to learn what justice is and to act like you. So, let me offer some suggestions. As I said, it's not, a, it's not a switch. Jesus doesn't present this as a switch that we can flip, but there's some steps that we can take. There's some ways to be intentional about becoming like our Father. I'll call these steps to perfection. It's a bit of a, a, bit of a bold statement, but, but you know the context now, right? Steps of becoming, of, of demonstrating the characteristic, the likeness of our Heavenly Father. First is this, let, let your mind, let our minds be transformed. We've got to expand our circle of thinking, change our definitions, or at least begin to adopt Jesus's attitudes towards those we insist on thinking of as enemies. This is a heart issue for all of us. Remember, it takes God's power to make these even possible. But we need to allow God's spirit to reshape our thinking about our enemies. Yes, there are some enemies, as I've mentioned, that will ultimately de be defeated. Sin, death, and the devil. Those are the true and vile enemies of humanity. And through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, God has defeated all three. It's just a matter of time. But everyone else who, for whatever reason, we ourselves classify as enemies, we need to treat differently. We need to begin to allow God to change our minds, to think differently about them. He sacrificed himself for us. We have to learn to reflect that sacrifice to others. Number two, we need to expand our prayer list. Very practical. We can start here and then continue. I know this kind of doesn't seem like much or it doesn't seem like this is sort of the Christian response. Oh, I'll pray, I'll, pr I'll pray for you, right? I mean, that, sometimes we do that. But we need to realize that there's actually power to this. Right? This is not just, just kind of putting aside the issue. It's actually dealing with the issue because when we pray, when we present God, say, God, here's this person I classify as an enemy. Here's what I think of them. We can't hide. We can't, we can't pretend before God. He knows what's going on. You and I could. There's going to be some prayer partners going to come up after the service, and I encourage you to spend time praying with them. And you could come up to them, and, 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 and you could fool them as human beings, but you can't fool God. This is the power of prayer. It allows us not only to be honest and to be forthright and to be authentic, but then it allows, invites God into our life to, to, to respond, to help us respond. So don't just plot revenge. When you find, use these as an indication, when you find your jaw clenching when you think of a person, or your fists forming or tears falling, use that as an indication then to pray. Pray for that person who has hurt you. Pray for that person who refuses to admit the hurt they have caused or continues to pursue that your harm. Give the spirit access to your heart to transform you through your prayer life. Number three, 
like Christ, then be prepared to love anyone. Here and now, be prepared to love anyone. By God's grace, commit to love anyone. Again, Paul wrote that Christ was willing to die for us, his enemies. Christ's love was sacrificial, and we need to be prepared to do that. And then finally, kind of off the the back end of this one, take the opportunity to do good. When the opportunities arise, or when you're inspired to make, or to take an opportunity, or to make one, take advantage of them to do good to the people who you think of as enemies. I love this passage in in Exodus 23. Here's Here's an invitation today. Go ahead and do this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, don't leave it you shall bring it back to him. If you see a donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it for them. Take advantage of opportunities to do good, even for those who you would classify as enemies. Even the text we have, again, an example of the willingness of God to do good to all. If we have responded to God's invitation to submit our lives to him and follow Jesus, we are capable of doing this because we are being transformed into God's likeness, the likeness of his son. We must remember that. As a demonstration of that transformative power, we can do both. We can stand up against evil, but we can also love those who promote it. We can stand up against injustice, but still love those who are perpetuating it. And we can pray for those who wish us harm. I'm gonna invite uh, Corey and Adam to come back up and the rest of the team to get ready to close our service here with another song. And as they do, Let me just conclude with this. This likeness of our Father is not something that we can simply conjure up on our own. This standard is not achievable on our own strength. These rewards are not available by just trying harder because loving like this and praying like this is not humanly possible. This is what sets the Christian faith apart. Doing incredible things because we have incredible power. Paul wrote these amazing words to the Philippians when he was challenging them to do stuff like rejoice in all circumstances. And I think they apply uh, to Jesus' question, uh, what reward do you have? The answer that most of us likely want to give is we want to be like Christ. We want to reflect our heavenly father to demonstrate that we are children of God. But this seems so difficult. So in closing, Let these words of Paul ring in your ears as we conclude, okay? You know them. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, this is by your grace and by your power. We need your help. We thank you for Jesus and his example. We thank you for the power that is available as we submit to you. I pray for all of us. I pray for us as a church that we would seek to be intentional about our love for all, including those that we still classify as enemies. We still, we, we struggle with relating to for whatever reason. Father, you know the hurt. This is not something we're, that you want us to just throw under the rug. This is something we want to deal and acknowledge with. But, but here, Father, help us to... Help us to experience the power of the resurrection power of Jesus that's available in us as we allow you to reorient our lives toward everyone in our life. That you would help us, that you would help us as a church 
to be better and better at reflecting the likeness. We become more and more like you, our Heavenly Father, who has sent his Son so that we could have life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.